During, uh, during World War II, it's a fitting metaphor as we think about Independence Day and the different wars our nation has fought in over the years. During World War II, um, one of the critical success factors for the Allied forces was something called ULTRA. And ULTRA was a, was a code-breaking system that was engineered by British intelligence, and it was primarily used to decipher codes that were produced by the German Enigma machine. There's been several different books and movies that have made some of this famous. The Enigma code was said to be unbreakable, some, some number of billions of different combinations that, that this code could put out and, and uh, encode messages in. But when British intelligence successfully cracked it, they instantly gained this huge advantage. You know, they knew at that point when they intercepted communications what the enemy was going to do before they actually did it. So one example. In 1941, uh, German and Italian naval forces were planning a, a surprise attack on the British Navy somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. So somehow, uh, they intercepted, uh, the British intelligence intercepted a message encoded by Enigma and Ultra decoded it and they essentially turned the whole thing around. What was meant to be a surprise attack against them actually was used by them to become a surprise attack against the German and Italian naval forces, and they won that battle. Okay, that's one of a dozen or more examples of how Ultra provided them an advantage. And the existence of, of Ultra, this code-breaking system, it wasn't known, it wasn't made public until the 1970s. Uh, but once it became public, it was immediately obvious to everyone just how much of an edge this gave the Allied forces in their war effort. So Dwight D. Eisenhower had written a letter to another general, and he called it priceless. He called it a decisive contribution to the Allied victory. And that totally makes sense when you think about it, because they knew what was going to happen before it actually did. So if you and I, let's, let's translate that to our lives today. If you and I knew what was going to happen before it actually did, we would change the way that we live, would we not? If we knew what was going to happen before it actually happened, that would impact the way that we live our lives. In the 1990s, there was a relatively short-run TV show called Early Edition. Anyone familiar with this TV show? The premise was that this guy got tomorrow's newspaper today. If you grew up with like family-friendly programming like you did in my house, it was like Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, and Early Edition, <laughs> Touched by an Angel. These were, the shows, these were the shows of my childhood. So Early Edition, the premise was this guy gets the, tomorrow's paper today, and then he changes his whole day. He, he helps people that are going to be hurt that day. He stops bank robberies, things like that. So maybe if, you, if we knew what was going to happen, we'd do something like that and help people. Uh, maybe we'd be like Biff in Back to the Future and use it for our financial advantage. You know, bet on all the sports teams that are going to win, build a huge empire. But one way or another, we would align ourselves with what the future was going to hold. We would make adjustments, even radical adjustments to our lives, to live in light of what was going to happen. In the Bible, in Scripture, there are various texts that include visions. And visions are part of God's revelation to his people, which is really important to remember because sometimes we come across these passages where there are visions and they seem like puzzles and they seem like codes, you know, like we're supposed to solve the riddle that's there. But really, they're meant to reveal something. They're meant to, to be glimpses and pictures of what is to come. That's why they're there. And Daniel has this shift right in the middle of the book. The first six chapters of Daniel is narrative. It's the story of Daniel and his friends 
in exile in Babylon and what life looks like for them and how they remain faithful to God in the midst of it. Starting in chapter 7 and then through the rest of the book of Daniel, it switches, and the second half of the book contains all of these visions from God given to Daniel, and they give these glimpses of what is to come. And Daniel 7 here in particular is, a, is, a, is an important vision for us to dive into and learn and wrestle with. Because really, it, to, to, so to speak, it cracks the code. It pulls back the curtain and lets, it's God letting Daniel see what is going to happen in the history and the trajectory of all of humanity. Where is all of this going? Daniel chapter 7 is a, is a really important text that pulls back the curtain lets us glimpse that. So we're going to jump in, and we're going to start at verse 9. The first eight verses actually detail the vision itself. So Daniel is in a leadership role in the Babylonian Empire. Uh, It says it's the first year of King Belshazzar. So that's around 550 B.C. when this is taking place. Uh, Belshazzar, if you've been with us in the book of Daniel, he's the one who was having that huge, crazy party and saw the the handwriting on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. Okay, This vision happens before that. So this, the book is not quite arranged in chronological order. It happens before that. But in this vision, Daniel sees four beasts come out of the sea. And they're all grotesque and dangerous in their own way. But the fourth beast in particular is in a category all its own. It's not just a, a hybrid of animals. It's actually an animal hybrid with iron teeth and bronze claws and ten horns. One of the horns having the ability to speak and see. It has eyes and a mouth. So that's the first eight verses. We'll pick it up in uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and then read through the rest of that chapter. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. 
until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you, in your kindness to us, give us glimpses of what is to come before it actually happens. Thank you for giving that to Daniel. Thank you for Daniel's faithfulness to record it, that we might have it today. Would you help us approach this longing to know what it is that you're revealing? Um, not overwhelmed, not trying to crack the code or solve the puzzle, but God, really trying to just discern what it is that you're doing in the history of humanity and where it's all going and what our lives look like in light of that, what it looks like to align our lives with that. By your Spirit, uh, work in our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to hear, to see. Uh, we pray that in your name. Amen. Okay, so there's a lot here. There's a lot in Daniel chapter 7. And even if it doesn't seem like it, there's a lot that really applies directly to, to us. So let's work our way through this in a couple different parts. We're first going to look at what will happen. According to Daniel's vision, what will happen. And then we'll look at what to expect as it does. And then lastly, how to respond. What's going to happen, what to expect as it does, and how to respond. So according to Daniel's vision, what's going to happen? What are the things that are to come? Daniel gives us a preview of this, and some of it, some of the things Daniel sees is actually going to happen during his own lifetime. Some of it's going to happen very much after his lifetime. These first three beasts, you know, they represent king, kings and kingdoms, and they really appear to be symbols for the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Medo-Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the, uh, Greece, the Empire of Greece and Alexander the Great. The fourth beast is quite different. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But Daniel has already experienced some of this happen in his own lifetime. He's in Babylon in the first place because he's seen the Babylonian kingdom, the Babylonian empire, come to power. And about a decade after this vision happens, you know, the night of that writing on the wall that we looked at in Daniel chapter 5, that night Babylon falls and the Medo-Persian empire conquers them and takes over. But according to Daniel's vision here, here's the big idea. Kings and kingdoms are going to rise and fall, and as they do, they're going to oppose God and his people. That's what's to come. Kings and kingdoms will rise and they'll fall. As they do, they're going to oppose God and his people. That's what the future holds for Daniel. That's actually what our history, Daniel's future, which is our history, has proven to be the case. 
There's a, a historian named Barbara Tuckman, and she has this great line. She says this, Revolutions produce other men, not new men. Revolutions produce other men, not new men. And what she's trying to say there is that there's just something fundamental about kings and kingdoms that doesn't change when regimes do. Okay, why is that? It's because the the kingdoms of humanity, the kingdoms of this world, are shaped by the corruption of human beings. So though the, the corruption will be different in every specific instance, sometimes opposition to God will be overt, and sometimes it'll be subtle. And sometimes it'll be really strong and pronounced. And sometimes it'll be really quiet and weak. But it's always there. There will always be opposition. It's woven into the kingdoms of mankind. It's actually part of our sin nature. You know, opposition to God is the essence of sin itself. And it's been part of the equation for humanity ever since Genesis chapter 3. You know, there was a hot second where it wasn't part of the equation. And then ever since Genesis chapter 3, it's been there. But Daniel here doesn't just see that kingdoms are going to rise and fall. He doesn't just see that they're going to oppose God. He sees two other things that are really important for us. He sees that God will judge, and he sees that the Son of Man will reign. There's this courtroom scene here. It begins right there in verse 9, where God, the Ancient of Days, he's depicted in all of his purity, all of his wisdom, all of his power, And there's this huge multitude serving him, this perfect judge, God the Ancient of Days, on his throne, this multitude serving him, an even bigger multitude gathered around that. And the books are opened, and God pronounces his judgment. And what's the result of that? What does it say? The result of that is that dominion is taken away from the kingdoms of the world, and it's given to one, as Daniel sees, like a son of man. See, this is not just another regime change. This is truly a revolution. It's not just another king and kingdom. It's an entirely different kind of man, an entirely different kind of king and kingdom. And Daniel wouldn't live even close enough uh, to, long enough to, to see this unfold. But close to 600 years after this, there was a man that started appearing around and teaching in Palestine who taught with an authority unlike anybody else. And he performed signs and he performed wonders unlike anybody else. And some people called him teacher. And some people called him a fraud. And some people even called him Christ. You know, the anointed Messiah, the one sent by God. But you know what that person's favorite title was for himself? It was the Son of Man. And of course, if you're familiar with the Bible or Christianity, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. His favorite title for himself as he did his three years of life and ministry on this earth was the Son of Man. And Jesus is the fulfillment of what Daniel sees here in this vision six centuries before that. Now as the Son of Man, Jesus is given dominion and he's given glory and he's given a kingdom. And it says that people from all nations will serve him for all of time, that his kingdom will be one that is never destroyed. And Jesus himself, in his lifetime, actually claims that he's going to fulfill this. He predicts that. So this famous scene of Jesus on trial before Pilate, before the high priests, in Mark chapter 14. The high priest, the Jewish high priest, questions him, asks him, this, uh, asks him directly, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Is that you? 
And Jesus responds and says, I am. And he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's an explicit, overt reference to Daniel chapter 7. And right after Jesus says that, he's condemned for blasphemy, condemned to die on a cross. But as most of you are familiar with the story, he doesn't stay dead. He's an entirely different kind of man, an entirely different kind of king. So he rises from death and he ascends to reign with God. And yet, though Jesus has come, and though Jesus is the Son of Man, the fulfillment of what we see here in Daniel 7, opposition to God persists in our world today, does it not? Opposition to God persists. See, we live, and this is awkward, and this is difficult, we live in this difficult moment between the two comings of Jesus. He's already come, and in His death, in His resurrection, He has shown Himself to be the Son of Man. He's shown Himself to be worthy of receiving this kingdom and this glory and this dominion that is coming to Him. But it's not until He comes again that the complete fulfillment of this is realized. Daniel 7 gives us a glimpse of really the end of history as we know it. And that actually gets picked up in the New Testament counterpart to the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. And what Daniel sees here that's a little bit vague, you know, he sees one like a son of man in Daniel chapter 7. In Revelation, John, as he recounts his vision, he sees that it's explicitly, it's Jesus who is given dominion over everything, given a kingdom which has no end. So what is it, what's going to happen according to this vision from Daniel? Kingdoms will oppose God. As they do, they will rise, they will fall. But God will judge, and the Son of Man will reign forever. That's the summary of Daniel chapter 7, the vision that he sees there. So if that's the case, secondly, what should we expect life to be like? Kingdoms are going to rise and fall. God's going to judge. Jesus will reign forever. What should we expect life to look like? It's been famously said that expectations are resentments under construction. You ever heard that quote before? Expectations are resentments under construction. Uh, we're in a season of the life of our church where there are a lot of couples doing premarital or pre-engagement counseling at Liberty. And one of the first things that we talk about in pre-engagement and premarital counseling are expectations. Like, what are the expectations that you have for what married life is going to look like? And what are the expectations that your soon-to-be spouse has for what marriage is going to look like? And how realistic or completely unrealistic are those expectations? The better that we can get those out in the open on the front end, the less chance there is of you being disillusioned, um, crushed under the weight of the differences between your expectations and reality when it comes to marriage. Or really, your expectations for anything. If God is going to be kind enough to show us what the future of everything is going to look like, it would be wise for us to calibrate our expectations to that. It'll dramatically decrease our chances of being disillusioned, of being crushed by things as they actually happen. So if kingdoms rise and fall, if God judges, if Jesus will reign, what do we expect? Well, first, we should expect opposition to God to continue indefinitely. Expect it to continue indefinitely. And we see that really uh, particularly here in the fourth beast in Daniel's vision. The fourth beast represents a fourth kingdom 
Scholars much smarter than I have seen parallels here to Greece, to Rome, to various kingdoms from the history of the world. But we also, as we look at this text itself, we have to remember this fourth beast is so different. Daniel says that a couple times here. It's so different from the other three that it almost defies classification. It's something that's of a different substance than the other three that he mentions here. And if we were just talking about Rome, let's say, if the fourth beast was just an equivalent to Rome, then according to Daniel's vision, all the rest of which has happened, all the rest of which has happened in some way, shape, or form, then when Rome fell early in the 5th century, that really should have been the end of human kingdoms, of human power. That should have been the beginning of the fulfilled reign of the Son of Man. But it wasn't. You know, we're a lot further down the road than 410 A.D. right now, and we're still waiting for that. We're still waiting on Jesus to return. We're still waiting on the complete fulfillment of this. So, though we, though we can see some parallels here, we should expect this opposition from God to continue and to persist in whatever the remaining kingdoms of this world look like. This fourth kingdom in particular shows how that opposition to God doesn't just stay stagnant, it actually escalates. It actually escalates before the full reign of Jesus, the Son of Man. So verse 25 in particular, uh, it characterizes this kingdom and the rulers of this kingdom with a few things. It says that this, that this person will speak words against the Most High. Right? So there's mocking, there's blasphemy of God. It says that the, it'll wear out the saints of the Most High. It'll wear them out. So there's drawn-out persecution of God's people. It's an important thing to remember in our particular cultural moment, too, that persecution is not the same thing as disagreement. You know, sometimes in, our, in Western culture, we tend to think anytime someone opposes us and disagrees with our point of view, that that equals persecution. Um, I would submit to you that what Daniel's referring to here is a lot worse than like disagreement or public disagreement. Persecution is worse than that. It also says there in verse 25 that the times will change, the law will change. There'll be new celebrations and festivals. There'll be new laws. There'll be a new morality that's part of this. So we should expect these things to persist. We should expect these things not only to persist, but to escalate before the judgment of God, before the victory of Jesus. And though we will always be disheartened and discouraged when those things happen, I don't know any way to not be when that happens, we should never be surprised. Okay? Be discouraged, be disheartened, that's right and good. Don't be surprised. Because this is exactly what God has shown Daniel will come. But also, as you expect that, this is just as important, if not more important, expect Jesus to win. Expect Jesus to win. That sounds so simple. It sounds so simple to say that, and yet we become so overwhelmed by what only our eyes can see in a given moment that we're prone to forget that. We're, pr- we're, we're prone to stop expecting Jesus to win when it's all said and done. Instead, when we see this escalating opposition to God in the world, we should expect that God, who is this perfect and pure and powerful judge, we should expect that actually he has an opinion about these things that happen in the world and that he actually mourns things that happen in the world and mourns opposition to him more than you and I ever could. We should expect that as bad as it might seem to get, that it does not change the outcome. There's a 
common metaphor that we use sometimes to describe what a, what a Christian's experience looks like in, in the world. And the metaphor is that we're, we live a life of swimming upstream. You know, we're swimming upstream in a river. And that's a helpful illustration because it, it shows the difficulty, you know, against the current, against the flow of where it seems like the majority of people in the world are heading. They're going this way. Well, in order to pursue faithfulness to God, Christians have to stand against that. There's resistance to it. It's the opposite direction. But if we zoom out a little bit further than that, ultimately, who's really swimming against the current? And who's actually swimming with the current? Christians swim against the current of the kingdoms of this world, but ultimately, it's those kingdoms themselves that are swimming against the current of God's trajectory for the world. So on this cosmic, eternal scale, the people of God actually are the ones floating downstream, not swimming against the current. Now, because of both of these things, expect opposition to continue and escalate, but expect Jesus to win. Because of both of those things, thirdly, we should also expect your life, our lives, to be an uncomfortable and maddening, at times, roller coaster of victory and defeat. Expect your life to be an uncomfortable roller coaster of victory and defeat. There will be victory. You'll experience that. The people of God will experience that in this life because of what Jesus has already accomplished and because of the inevitability that he will reign forever. But we'll also experience defeat because the complete fulfillment of Jesus' reign hasn't happened yet. This is sometimes referred to as the tension between the already and the not yet. By that meaning that Jesus coming into the world, dying, rising from the dead, his kingdom is now. It's, it's present. It's active. It's working in the world. It's already. But the, the complete realization, the fulfillment of it, is not until he comes again. Because we live in that tension, we're not triumphalist. We don't, we don't expect nothing except victory. If we do that, we find ourselves without a category for suffering in our lives. We find ourselves without a category for ongoing sin in our own lives, ongoing sin in the world around us. But nor are we defeatist. You know, nor do we just, just expect hardship and difficulty. If we do that, we'll leave ourselves without a category for celebration and rejoicing, which we can have because Jesus has already come and accomplished victory. So expect opposition to God, expect Jesus to win, and expect to live in that roller coaster between those two times. Lastly, how do we respond to this? If this is what's going to happen, if this is what to expect, how do we respond to this? First, let's just say this. This is a stewardship issue. It's a stewardship issue. And that's going to sound a little bit weird because if you've been in church circles much in your life, like stewardship is always code word for money. It's like when we talk about stewardship, it means money. But stewardship is actually meant to be a lot more than that. It's our, it's our whole lives. It's our abilities. It's the opportunities God gives us. This is a stewardship issue because if we know, if God gives us a glimpse of the end before it happens, if we know what's going to happen before it happens, that makes you and I stewards of the knowledge of the future of everything. We're stewards of the knowledge of the future of everything. Paul, in his letter to the, first, to the, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he, said, he calls himself a steward of the mysteries of God. 
A steward of the mysteries of God. That's what you and I are. We're a steward of what God has revealed. We're a steward of his mysteries. And to steward those things means that we don't just use that for our own benefit. We seek to use it in a way that's beneficial for others as well. It means that we point other people to this knowledge, to this revelation that we've been entrusted with. We help people see the secret to the history of the world. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't solve all the riddles along the way, but it does definitely give us this big picture outlook to where everything is going. The kingdoms will come and go. That, that though some of them will certainly be better than others, all of them will experience and will exemplify the fracture of sin. They'll all evidence opposition to God in one way or another. But the good news that we also get to share with them is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who is the Son of Man, He is going to be given His kingdom that will never be destroyed. He will reign forever. To be a faithful steward of this means we proclaim that with our words. It requires words to help people understand that. It's not really a substitute for words. So people don't like turn on CNN, see things that happen in the world, and just intuit that Jesus wins. It's not like a natural conclusion to draw from that if you don't have that worldview. Uh, nor, although, although we want to seek to exemplify being faithful to God and all that that entails as Christians, nor do people just look at the lives of Christians and intuit all of this. They might be compelled by that or intrigued to ask by that, but they won't know what God has revealed without words. So we proclaim this with our words. At the same time, we definitely proclaim this with our lives. And in light of the victory of Jesus, just a couple things that this could look like. Patience without passivity. There's one thing I think that this should look like. Patience without passivity. Because God is patient, you get this picture of God in Scripture as patient. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Because God's patient, that often translates into a lot of waiting for the people of God. You ever notice how much the people of God wait in the Bible? They're sent into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Why? Because God's patient. And he's waiting on all the tribes in the promised land for, for them to either repent or just continue in their sin. They continue in their sin. But he's patient with them. They wait an additional 40 years in the wilderness once they're set free from slavery in Egypt. They're in exile in Babylon for 70 years. That's where Daniel comes into the picture. He, his story overlaps there. 70 years. And then after they return to Jerusalem, after they build the temple, there's this 400-year period of silence. God doesn't have any authoritative revelation for a period of 400 years. And then Jesus comes and breaks that silence. And he perfectly accomplishes the work that God had sent him to do. He redeems Sinful men and women like you and me. He reconciles them to God. He accomplishes this decisive victory that will bring about the full fulfillment of this vision that Daniel sees. But what does he say? It doesn't happen when he does that. It doesn't happen immediately. That's still to come. So he tells his disciples what? He tells them to wait more. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then, all the way, by the way, after the Holy Spirit comes, wait another centuries it's been so far for my return. So the people of God are a patient people. We're a patient people. We wait for the present and we wait for the coming deliverance of God. And we wait on His timing. 
to accomplish his victory. He gets to do that according to, to his timetable. But as we wait, we don't wait passively. And Daniel's a great picture of this, a great example of this for us. Daniel is anything but passive as he waits in exile for his whole lifetime. Even after he gets this vision of God, from God, about the fall of Babylon, which is going to happen about 10 years after this, he continues to serve faithfully. He continues to, to exercise patience, serving faithfully that God really is going to bring about victory, will bring about the end of Babylonian reign, and will free the people of God, the Israelites, to go back to, to their land. So patience without passivity. It also enables confidence without cockiness. Confidence without cockiness. Professional athletes, professional athletes are notorious for making cocky statements before games. Recent example was this year's NBA Finals. I don't really watch much NBA until the finals. I, I tune in a little bit for that. But um, after losing game five, the Cavs were playing the Golden State Warriors. If you have no idea, if you weren't paying attention, no problem. The Cavs were playing the Golden State Warriors. After losing game five to Golden State, LeBron James guaranteed that the Cavs would win game six. Made a guarantee. And though it might sound like confidence, you know, we, we actually attribute this to be a virtue in professional athletes often. It sounds like confidence. It's actually cockiness. Okay, what's the difference? The difference is security. The difference is security. See, cockiness is just an expression of insecurity. And all of us have insecurities. And all of us, in different moments, express those insecurities in different ways. Sometimes we shut down. Insecurity makes us shut down. Sometimes we overcompensate and we get arrogant, cocky. That's what LeBron's guarantee was. He was on the verge of elimination, losing the series. That's an insecure place to be when you're a professional athlete who has constant pressure on him to perform. So he guarantees a victory in Game 6. But here's the thing. Real confidence doesn't need to be cocky. Real confidence doesn't need to be cocky because real confidence comes from a place of real security. And in the eternal reign of the Son of Man, there is a security without comparison. We can see the future before it happens. right? LeBron couldn't do that, which is why he guaranteed a win and then lost. But seeing the victory of Jesus means we need not brag about anything. Instead, we can celebrate the victory of God confidently while at the same time retaining this posture of humility, of compassion toward all people, and especially people that persist in their opposition to God. We need not boast or brag or be cocky. That's for people who are insecure, not for the security that's given to the people of God. And Daniel exemplifies this as well. He never taunts the, his, his, his uh, fellow leaders in Babylon or Persia. He remains faithful to his God. He speaks the truth, but it's from this place of deep security. Lastly, the victory of God also enables us to be disturbed without becoming despondent. Disturbs, disturbance without despondency. So twice in this text, and you probably heard it as we read, verse 15 and then again in verse 28, Daniel tells us that he's alarmed, greatly alarmed. His color changes. And I'm glad that that's there, because if it wasn't, I'd be prone to think that Daniel was superhuman. 
Right? This makes him real. This makes him relatable. He's freaked out by what he sees in this vision. But if God wins in this vision, why is he so anxious? Why is he so alarmed? It's because this is a really violent and quite literally beastly picture of the reign of the kingdoms of this world. And the opposition of God is going to continue, and not only continue, but escalate. And think about what Daniel has already seen the opposition of God look like in the kingdoms he's been a part of. Have you ever read Lamentations? Have you ever read the account in the Bible of the city of Jerusalem falling to the Babylonians? I've lived such a sheltered life, I can't fathom anything worse than what I read there. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what that's like at all. Daniel has witnessed that and then sees that it's going to get worse than that. So he's alarmed. It means there's going to be persecution and bloodshed and chaos and heartbreak for the people of God on a scale that even he has not seen at at that point. So the only reason that someone's not alarmed in reading this and thinking about this is that they're not paying attention. But here's where the victory of God makes all the difference. It allows us to be realistic It allows us to be honest. It allows us to be disturbed without becoming despondent. It protects us from hopelessness while we're disturbed. Another World War II analogy is really helpful here for me. There's a scholar named D.A. Carson, and he compares the period of history that we're in right now between the comings of Jesus to the period between D-Day and V-E Day on the European front of World War II. So D-Day is the day that the Allied forces, at great cost to themselves, established a beachhead in France. And it became this decisive battle, decisive victory, that led to the winning of the whole war. But VE Day, the day that they actually received that victory, wasn't until almost a full year after that. And D.A. Carson says that the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's like D-Day. That's like D-Day. Victory is assured because of that day. It is going to happen. It's been accomplished. And yet, the full experience of that will not come until Jesus comes again. That's like VE Day. The period of time in between that is very much still a war, just like it was for the Allied forces in World War II. Nobody was pretending. Nobody was playing war for that year. People died. People suffered. Some of the worst fighting that happened in the war happened in that year. And likewise, you and I, we don't play at real life just because we know the outcome, just because we know where this is going. There's real hurt and heartbreak and chaos and suffering in this world. But with Daniel, as we're disturbed by the trajectory, by where, by where the opposition of, uh, of kingdoms to the people of God is going, We don't become despondent because we truly do see that God will judge, that Jesus will reign. So as we see this vision that God gave to Daniel so many years ago that we have recorded for us, let's let's see the gift that this is. Let's not be freaked out by visions when we find them in Scripture. Let's see them as a gift that God's been kind enough to pull back the curtain and reveal where all of this is going, to give us a glimpse of that. And with the grace that God gives, with the grace that God supplies, let's believe it to be true. Let's be wise enough to align our expectations, to align our our whole lives with that. And let's be compassionate enough, bold enough 
to proclaim to all who will listen that which we've been gifted to understand ourselves. So kingdoms will rise and fall. They will persist in their opposition to God, but God will judge, and Jesus, the Son of Man, will reign forever. And may he sustain us until he does. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you as the the one who will fulfill what Daniel saw. And we're grateful that even now you reign, that even now you are you are doing this work of reconciling the world to yourself, drawing people to follow you as king, putting down that which persists in opposition to you. Sustain us through the the maddening and difficult mix of victory and defeat in the meantime. We admit our weakness. God, we can't understand the day-to-day events and how all that fits into your big picture. All that you've been kind enough to show us is, is the end, is the big picture of where this is going. So give us faith to trust that. And as we get to come to this table today and each week, remind us that this victory, that your eternal reign, your dominion, your glory that is given to you from God the Father, you bought, you achieved, you accomplished with your, your own blood, with your own body given for us. Weak and feeble as we are, we get to come and we get to experience life in you. And we get to be reassured today and each day that because you are God, because you sustain us, you will carry through to completion the good work that you begin. Thank you for this. Be with us as we come to the table. We pray this in your name. Amen.